Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today on this show is a good friend of ours, Chris Skinner, one who needs no introduction. Um, and I don't think we should even try anyway. If you guys don't know Chris, just look him up and, and be sure to educate yourself and, and read his blogs. It can be quite an entertainment sometimes. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thanks, Theo, and hello, Brad. <laughs> hello, strangers. Um, so much has happened since you came on the show last time, even though we did meet recently at Renovate uh, London. You have a good book, a new book, Digital for Good, that is coming out in June. But before we get to that, let's talk about other books we have been writing. You've been writing kids' books, have you, Chris? What's that all about? It's kind of a weird development during the pandemic in that um, I've produced many business books. In fact, Digital for Good is number 17, um, but there's only a few worth reading. Um, and then I was sitting down with my little boys one night two years ago and um, decided to tell them a story uh, rather than read them a story. And uh, my son was really excited about the idea of Captain Cake and the candy crew flying through space. And so it developed into a series of characters, Lieutenant Chocolate, Sergeant Jelly and Private Potato. And um, they're managed by Commander Pickle, who's always in a pickle. Um, and the command commander is General Rock, because he's obviously very stable and reliable and resilient. And I floated the idea past my publishing company and they said, we love this idea. Um, we'll contract you to write five books about Captain Cake and the Candy Crew. So they're all done and dusted. Like I finished them, they're all coming coming out. Some are, are, are available already. I think the first three books. Um, and that's just become a, another sideline. I like that sideline though. I actually ordered them for a friend of mine um, with little kids. Mine are a little too old, but I, I think it's like kind of cool. Maybe you can evolve into something else too, something different. Well, it's, it's you know those are all designed for three to five year olds, and then my main books are designed for eighteen to a hundred years old. I would say, mentally speaking, we do have quite a few um, probably in our ecosystem that would probably can read, you know, command a pickle. Always in a pickle. I think that's, you know, banking in general, don't you think? Um, 17 books. I mean, that's pretty amazing, uh, you know, just in terms of the the writing experience and having gone through that um, with Theo last year. Did you find writing the, the children's books to be an, an entirely different experience? Can you talk about that a little bit in terms of just the, the sheer change of writing style and everything else? Oh, wow. I mean, it's it's totally different. So it's all designed around um, having a pictorial experience. But so, you know, all five books are around 100 pages and every page is one sentence uh, or, or sometimes two, but uh, very rarely more. You have to develop stories and ideas. So, um, you know, by way of example, we found out that General Rock brought Commander Pickle to life from a, a bottle of pickles by accident. And then that kind of develops into the whole story. And um, 
Equally, each of the characters have special superpowers apart from Private Potato because she's a sweet potato. She is the one that is the most practical and flies the spaceship and fixes the engines and you know, knows how to, how to sort everything out. It's kind of, it's really silly, but that's what children like. But the main reason the publisher commissioned five books is it's teaching life lessons to kids around um teamwork friendship loyalty and how to um you know, learn skills for life i think one of the um the things that we lose as we get older is uh, those simple messages and i think that a lot of business books could be better off if they were uh, more focused that way. So I think, if anything, um, the the blending of the two is what we're going to start seeing in, in your books and hopefully more. In in your current book, your new book, you say, stand for something or you will fall. So that's quite a statement to make on the front cover. Uh, and can you just tell us more about that than about this new book? And 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 did you do something different, you know, with this book this time around? You know, t- tell us, like, what your thoughts are here. Well, the new book developed over the past three years or, or maybe even more. Um, and all of my books are based on different angles of how I see the financial and technology industry. And um, what I noticed is that, um, first of all, there was a big discussion in 2019 pre-pandemic around a move towards stakeholder capitalism and doing good for society and for community and for the planet. Uh, as well as for employees, customers, and finally, or first and foremost for many institutions, shareholders. But a big change from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism implies that you really need to have everything in the round. And the more I thought about it, the more I could see, particularly in the startup community, that they, they were thinking much more in the round and specifically had a very clear purpose about what they felt they were trying to deliver to the stakeholders and to society and community and the planet. Um, it, it evolved maybe a little bit from Digital Human, where I speak, spoke to Ant Financial, uh, now Ant Group, about their um, Ant Forest, where they were planting trees based on financial behaviours to make the planet better. Um, and in fact, there was a poster of Jack Ma in the office when I was there that said, um, let's do good for society and the world. And you know, it stayed with me. Um, and so the thinking was really around, that's a really strong message. And I can see it in fintech companies like Ant Group and others like Monzo and Starling and more. Um, but if I said, let's use technology to make the world better, uh, integrated with finance, then that would sound like Chris Skinner's on a sort of pedal stool shouting. So the difference with this book is I decided not to write it myself. I, I mean, I've written chapters in the book, but I invited Theo and a number of other contributors to step in and give their perspectives. So it ended up being um, over, over 20 chapters and 20 contributors from around the world. And it actually does cover the whole world, um, all five continents. Um, I, I didn't include Antarctica uh, and, the, and the Arctic because I couldn't find a, a, a good person there. Um, and one of the biggest messages, I guess, and that's what the 
headline on the front pages you know stand for something or you will fall is that you have to have a clear purpose that you're delivering to society community and the world around what you exist for and if you look at most bank histories for example the traditional banks when they started out the founders had a very clear focus on what they were trying to achieve and most of it was to create a better world for people and then they lost that because they moved to the shareholder focus of more profit for people um, but only the people involved in our business and I, I think that's turning around in the financial crisis of 2008 and this is one of, again what one of the big messages that's the origins of my thinking was the head of the UK regulator um, Lord Adair Turner said that banks had lost their moral compass and that they needed to have much more focus on what they stand for and I, I don't think that's happened but I think it is now happening it's evolving and definitely the fintechs stand for something but what do the banks stand for it's something it, it does resonate a lot um talking about not just purpose but but about your role in the society right what are you doing what are you what are you contributing not just to your bottom line but also for your kids and generations thereafter i remember reading an interview you did that talked about um you want to have a planet a world a society that's the viable that you can enjoy with your kids and the grandchildren on earth not in outer space or anywhere else um so while we have billionaires busy shooting themselves up to space for leisure i agree with you i would love to be able to enjoy what we have in this beautiful planet um with my kids you know however this is going to be and what's interesting there theo is um you know, you, you, you and Brad will know that for years I've spoken about digital transformation and digital banking and digital finance and fintech. Um, and now I've got to the stage in 2022 of saying, if you haven't done the digital bit, then you, you're way behind the eight ball because, you, you know, it's too late. In the, the, the next decade is all about exactly what we're saying here. How do we integ integrate the digital bit with finance to make sure our world exists in 50 years plus and a lot of people say the climate emergency doesn't exist um i'm actually not so concerned about the climate emergency i'm far more concerned about the biodiversity emergency you know we, we've lost over half of the an animals on this planet in the last um 30 plus years um and that's because of destruction of the of the environment and the eco ecology that animals live in so whichever angle you come in from we are obviously causing a problem and how do we solve that problem and it's interesting because someone said to me the other day you know what why do you think banks are important in this space and i said well banks give all the funding to the fossil fuel firms you know 71 percent of the carbon emissions in the last 30 years have come from 100 companies and the banks have been funding them you know, increasingly since the Paris Accord. Fossil fuel firms who do oil and gas got $4.6 trillion of investment or borrowing from the biggest 60 banks in the world. In fact, the highest borrowing coming from JP Morgan Chase and the American banks. So that for me is an issue. And that's where we have to change things. And that's the angle of this book. How do you bring technology and finance to make a better world that can be around for the next century.
So let's bring it back a little bit. Um, instead of the next century, let's look a little closer. Because towards the end of the book, you wrote something about the view from 2030, um, which is not that far away, if you think about it. What do you think is going to happen at, at that time? What will be that future of money um, in your point of view? Well, there's a number of things. And specifically, we will be more digitalized. Um, we will have solved the Bitcoin energy issue, which is a big part of the issue right now. Uh, we will be running with digital currencies. There will, will most likely be a networked economy with a networked currency. Um, will it be one? Uh, I think it will definitely not be more than 2,500, which we have today. Um, we will be in a situation where if the banks that don't show their values and culture and credentials in terms of their purpose will be questioned and they won't die out but there will be a lot of acquisitions and mergers of banks that are not doing the right thing for society and the customer um it's interesting because i think and i often talk to community banks um and mutuals and I, and I think the role of those will start to come back but in a digital form and the main reason being is that if you look at community banks they all of them have clear purpose in how they present their culture and values um and yet when you look at the biggest banks they they're often called faceless because they don't have clear culture and purpose uh, and so looking back from 2030 i think we'll see a did the biggest banks become digital in time to embrace the customer in a digital networked relationship and then this decade the 2020s did they show clear values that aligned with customer needs or did they continue to be faceless and if they are the latter i think they're the ones that will be acquired by the former I think that there's a lot of bridge to some of those things. Uh, so much has changed in the last 15 years. That's a lot of you know what we have written about and spoke about. And there's a lot of things going on in fintech and in banking and in big tech that will, I think, transpire to get to some of the places that you wrote about. When you when you think about right now, what are some of the things that have really maybe caught you by surprise the last year or two uh, during this sort of pandemic time? And and what what are we going to look back that will pull us to to some of those things that you just talked about about the future? Well, I mean, there's two two or three things, um, and they come from two angles, I guess. One is uh, the number of fintech companies that you may never have heard of that suddenly appear on the radar um, and are unicorns. Um, I think there were 36 fintech unicorns in 2018, and there's now um, 85 maybe more depends on what you read because um you know, everyone has their own opinion but certainly when you look at stripe and adyen and others um they've become mainstream and they're doing just a little bit of finance using apis and open ecosystems um and i don't think the banks have actually woken up to that i mean if you look at stripe for example which is now um 12 years old the last valuation was um, mid 2021 
at $95 billion. That's the equivalent of um, you know, that seven commas banks or, or two BBVAs. I mean, it's a huge valuation for a company that's so young, but it's because they're doing something very, very well in the networked economy. And I think the networked economy is what the traditionalists haven't quite understood because they'll go, oh, you mean the internet, the mobile phone app? And I'll go, no, what I mean is Stripe's beautiful code. And if you analyze how they code and their tech stack, then you'll get it. But most people don't get it. And the other thing that really caught my attention is um, Apple's movements from Apple Wallet and the credit card with Goldman Sachs to buying fintech companies and partnering with the likes of Adyen and Stripe to develop the Apple ecosystem, not trying to become a bank, but to try and make the Apple ecosystem one where they have the strongest partnerships and the easiest and most frictionless way of people doing things around their system with complete privacy and security. If you compare Apple with Facebook, for example, there's a clear contrast and Apple's making a point about this of saying, we will guarantee that everything is encrypted and your data is your data and no one can access it or abuse it. And you may remember that there was the massacre a few years ago where the um, FBI was ordering and the federal government was ordering Apple to open up the um, iPhone of the, of the murderer. And they said no. And that was a huge friction. And to me, that's an interesting angle with Apple, which is I think they really understand the tech system. Shock, horror. Who would have thought that? Um, and now they're developing that into the financial system with technology. And they're clearly a front runner. Um, I don't see any, any other company other than maybe Ant Financial, who I'm a, I'm a fan of, and Tencent in China, who are doing the same. But final point there is that you know, if you look at the Chinese tech giants, they integrated social, financial, and commercial. So imagine in America, if PayPal was acquired by Amazon, who acquired Facebook, you know, that wouldn't happen. Uh, but that's what happened in China. And now China's ripping that apart because they realize it's far too powerful. So there's a really interesting range of developments here. But uh, you know, the, Apple definitely caught my radar when they bought credit kudos and um, started to partner with Adyen and Stripe. Yeah, that that is that was very interesting thing that happened recently too. And um, I am a big Apple fan. I tell people that I use Apple Pay whenever I can. Um, Apple Watch is amazing. Um, I would literally switch browser back to Safari just so I can use Apple Pay on the website. Um, there's that convenience but but also like you said the trust factor right somehow we trust that they won't abuse our data and well until air attack anyway and now there's all these questions about security for women who get stalked by the devices i, I think next year is going to be interesting when we or even rest of this year when we start looking at um regulations especially what's being developed in in europe with respect to the regulators wanted to level the playing field. I think that's one of the words they would use um, by making interoperability a central theme between the different platforms. I think that that will be that will be interesting. I don't know how much I want WhatsApp to know what's going on with my uh, iMessage and vice versa, but 
it is it is going to be interesting to watch. So you used the word um, earlier quite a bit, actually, the, the network economy. Uh, let's talk about a different network economy, the metaverse, so one of the latest buzzwords that had many, many people super excited, including the big banks. Uh, Citibank came out recently with a report that talked about the um, addressable market for metaverse could be worth somewhere between 8 trillion and 13 trillion by 2030. It feels like monopoly money. Um, curious to hear what your thoughts are. Well, first, I, I love those reports that estimate what things were worth in 10 years. And then 10 years later, no one looks back and says, wow, they were so stupid. Um, Maybe that should be your next book, Chris. <laughs> Go back to all these reports Maybe. that analysts threw out. <laughs> Maybe it should be. I, I mean, the metaverse is nothing new. Um, it's been around for probably three decades. And the biggest breakout in a metaverse style was in the mid 2000s with Second Life. And I always go back to Second Life because I got heavily involved in blogging and writing and talking about it. Um, and I experimented in it. You know, uh, ING had a, an, a little Amsterdam in Second Life. Um, BNP Paribas did job interviews in Second Life. Um, so that was eff effectively a metaverse. It's an alternative reality uh, using the networked economy. Um, and Second Life then tanked and bombed after people have made millions, which is why it got all the media attention. Um, and the reason it tanked and bombed is because they created a financial system and the biggest bank in Second Life was Ginkgo Bank. And it closed one night and people found out that it was actually being run by one guy in Brazil who was a student who decided to take the one and a half million dollars in real money to go and buy an apartment and a Ferrari. Um, and people in Second Life didn't like that very much. So they said to the people who ran the platform, Linden Labs, what are you going to do about it? And they said, it's not our problem. We just provide this platform. Uh, well, users didn't like that either so they spent three months demonstrating virtually outside the virtual linden labs headquarters saying give us our money back and it ended up with the linden labs operators saying well i guess to be a bank in our virtual world you need to be a bank in the real world so you provide the you know guarantees that you have with banks in the real world and that's where i think the biggest play is in the metaverse which is for the big license banks that um, could be traditional or most likely will be the, the chimes and the new challenges, the new banks of this world. Um, new, new bank being one of my favorites in terms of the South American bank, um, providing metaverse financial services. I, I think that, yes, it's a huge opportunity, but the issue today is what platform would you do that on? Because when Second Life was around in the 2000s, there was a, just their one platform. And today there's probably many players who could create the platform of which obviously Facebook changed their name, their name to Meta wants to be the biggest, but they're just one contender. They're not the only one.
thankfully they're not the only one and you know the six or seven sort of major platforms that are evolving i think it's really interesting where all of this is going but uh to your earlier point about you know what happened within second life is you know, going to be the precursor to what likely happens with a lot of this stuff, you know, from the up and down of NFTs and the up and down of different variations of DAOs. And, uh, you know, where we're going is going to be really interesting. And they want to, you know, capitalize on this idea of Web3 and all the rest. But, you know, is it going to make anything better? Is it going to improve financial inclusion? Is inclusion going to mean actual, you know, optimization and actual like realization of people's financial lives being better and everything? And so when, when we get back to um, the book and talk about digital for good, is there any one thing that you want people to remember after they read your book? And if there's one thing or a couple things, what would they be? Well, first of all, I think it's that financial services plays an incredibly influential ability over our future, which a lot of us maybe don't actually think about enough. Um, a good example was I chaired a meeting around um, social responsibility, ESG, environment, social governance. Um, a couple of years ago and one of the speakers was a pension fund manager and i just remember him saying my biggest worry as a pension fund manager is i won't have anyone to pay a pension to because of the concerns around the way we're investing and treating the world um and so a big message is as an individual you may feel you have no influence over what goes on but there are influences. Another contributor in the book is Gail Bradbrook, who's co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. And I get a lot of people saying we don't like the way that Extinction Rebellion actively demonstrates against the world. But um, Gail makes the point that if you don't do something that gets attention, you get no attention. So she goes around and breaks banks' windows. Is that a bad thing? Um, if you read my blog, she's a guest on my blog these days, you'll find out actually that's quite legal, borderline, but you know, it's the suffragettes would never have got a, a vote for women if they hadn't actually demonstrated actively against the fact that they were being discriminated, discriminated against. And there's so many other examples out there. So I think that's another big message, which is you can change things as an individual, but when you bring the two together, the pension fund manager and the fund managers around the world as active investors and the customers around the world as active consumers, you squeeze the system from two sides, those who invest in the industries and those who consume from the industries, and you can change the world. And the main message is maybe I'm a bit naive or innocent, you know, it, I, I think we need to change the world to make technology and finance work for a better society and a better planet. And that's probably the final message um, in terms of we need to change the world to be a better world. I don't think we can afford not to change the world. It's an existential question for us. So what's next, Chris? Another five kids books, or you're already planning on uh, your book number 18? 
Well, we'll see how the Captain Cake book do, um, you know, succeeds. Uh, CaptainCake.com, if you want to find out more. Um, I've, I have actually finished five more in the series, but uh, we won't pu publish those until the first five prove that they're they're worth um, putting out there. And um, I, I tend to work on the business books on a two-year cycle, so I haven't quite worked out the theme of the next which I'll start working on next year. Um, but I think it's going to be around some of the questions to do with the metaverse and quantum computing and um, the way in which banks can leverage things. Because it's quite in interesting. I've got a number of other people in my network, including you guys who, who write. Um, but what tends to happen with me is my, my themes emerge through my travels. And I haven't traveled much for two years, so I need to get out there and do some traveling. So I've got a, a lot of speaking engagements coming up. Um, I'm going to Brazil next week and then uh, Canada next month. I've uh, got a lot of virtual keynotes to China and um, to Africa. So I'm pretty sure by the end of this year, I'll have a very clear theme. Um, and probably the, the, the major thing is I always want to bring it back to finance and technology. So I'm not interested in going out side though those sectors um, but artificial intelligence quantum computing cryptocurrencies central bank digital currencies um and the metaverse are going to be all the things that will be coming up in the next book that i i think there are quite a few um people that would agree with you i remember recently chatting with a mutual friend of ours and he said the next trend he's watching that he is incredibly excited for is quantum computing so let's see what happens next and i know um i will hopefully see you in london for fintech week london in the summer so this is wonderful thank you so much for joining us today and for our listeners please be sure to go check out chris's new book uh, digital for good. You might find a few names in there that you're familiar with and uh, definitely themes that you would resonate. So thank you all for listening in to another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us, Chris, again. <laughs>